Hello and welcome to today's episode of Humans of SDU. Um, today we're recording with Dylan Cawthorn and your hosts are Gargi and Miska. Welcome Dylan, thank you for coming to our podcast and accepting the invitation. It's a pleasure to have another teacher slash PhD student. Well, yeah. yeah, you're a man of many roles. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of slashes in my different roles and titles, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, before we get to that, let's get to your origin story, as you, as you stated on your website. This makes you sound like a superhero or a supervillain, but <laughs> either or, I don't know, I don't want to assume. Because uh, an article that was written about you uh, named you the hippie son from Alaska. So, okay, what does that mean? Please elaborate on that. Yeah, you have to be careful what you say to journalists. That's what I learned. <laughs> no, uh... So yeah, that, that article was about, I mean, like, yeah, where, where I grew up and how I grew up. So my parents are, I guess you could say hippies or, or were hippies back in 1980, late 70s, early 80s. And so, yeah, they were like kind of doing an off-grid type of vibe yeah. out in uh, the remote part of Alaska. And their sort of like dream was to sort of be like independent and they wanted to have a lot of freedom. They wanted to be in touch with nature. And so, yeah, they basically like, they won, my mom won a lottery where she actually won a piece of property out in the, wow. in the forest. Oh, that's really it's so bizarre. That's so so bizarre. she paid $100 and she got, <laughs> she like won a, a piece of property. Because at this time, the state of Alaska was trying to get more people to sort of move in yeah. certain, in, in more like remote areas. I don't know, to get more tax money, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I think I was, that was maybe right about the time where she was pregnant with me. Oh, okay. perfect timing. Perfect I know, time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So th- I, I was mean, born in the woods. Almost. <laughs> okay. Yeah, almost. Okay, okay. Small town with like 3,000, uh, yeah, 3,000 people. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Not quite in the woods. So, yeah, uh, when I was growing up, like we, uh, actually they built this house. Some Okay, when I tell this, people... Uh, I don't know if people even believe me. Because okay, <laughs> okay, well, when I know. say it out loud, it sounds kind of try ridiculous. Us. Okay, okay. okay try, try so, so what they did was they had this property, but we were staying in this small village, small town, and they wanted to build the house there. So they got a whole bunch of big logs, like one over one meter diameter, pretty long, and then they strapped them together, and they made a house on top of this raft. So they made a floating house in the town, and then they towed it out to the cabin. Wow. Okay, okay, I'm not sure if I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pretty intense. Yeah. Wow. It was wild. So A basically, we like grew up in this uh, like house that had been pulled up on the beach, so it was slightly tilted because the beach wasn't level. Yeah. So uh, yeah, my whole childhood, like all this stuff, was always rolling down the. Oh my god! It's like floor. it's like uh, you know living at sea or something. Oh well, yeah, the sea would come up every like twice a day. And oh wow! Like our back porch would be over the ocean. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! That's crazy. But you're probably picture. I don't know what you're picturing, but like it was very rustic. No, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would be a would be a flattering term for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very like low tech. I mean, it was. Uh, I think maybe people hear Alaska and they have this idyllic version of it that you see on movies. And I mean, Alaska will kick your ass. I mean, it's a hard place to live. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's one, two, three, uh, two, three months of nice weather, and that's where you get everything that you need to do done. To prepare for winter, winter yeah. and so we were living like a very basic lifestyle. I mean, uh, 
of course you can have all of these ideals, but we didn't have a lot of money. So it was like, it was living in a very rustic way, like wood stove, no running water. We had propane lights, this kind of thing. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So Going back to the 1900s. I mean, it was pretty old school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds pretty nice. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, of course your, your entire childhood was there, but mm. um, yeah. Do you think like if you had to go back to those beginnings now, would you be able to adapt? I've lost all my, almost all my Alaska skills <laughs> because I go back, uh, you know, maybe every summer or two. My sister still lives there. Oh, okay. and, and in the same house? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in the village. Was it upgraded a bit? No, it's just been slowly falling apart. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! So after my dad passed away, he left it to me and my sister. So she's like staying there quite mm -hmm. often, and uh, and yeah, I'm over here, so I, I visit every summer or two. Uh, but yeah, like when I go back, I, I'm just reminded of how soft I am, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. like, I mean, I, I, you know, you have, you don't have those skills anymore, you know, like my sister, her and her uh, boyfriend are like cutting, cutting trees down and like uh, cutting firewood. They're so <laughs> hardcore and badass. Oh, okay, okay. And I'm just like, you know, uh, oh, my hands are so soft because <laughs> I just like sit and type and do Excel and yeah, like write yeah. a PhD, you know, I, so yeah. So but, well, but the hand sanitizer <clears throat> will dry your hands out for you. I know, I know. Yeah, then I can get a little bit more. Yeah. So what were some cut. of the skills that you forgot <clears throat> from your Alaskan times? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of them is just kind of like practical things about, you know, uh, knowing how you need to know how like boat motors work because our cabin is out on an island. <clears throat> so if your boat motor doesn't dies, you're screwed. Uh, and what else? I mean, just things about like nature and animals and the weather. You need to be very keen on the weather, yeah. which changes very rapidly in Alaska. So it's just, yeah, it's just like a different skill set that you need to have. Mm -hmm. Does your knee tell you when it's raining? Do your joints? No, I'm not that old. I'm only um, 40, yeah. so maybe in a <laughs> no, couple of years. No, but maybe that's like something they can will... learn out in the nature, you know, when a lot of people <laughs> say, oh, my knee's hurting, so it yeah. must rain soon. I don't have that one, but yeah, maybe okay. maybe someday. But when you mentioned both motors, both mm. engines, mm. Uh, is that the beginning of your engineer career? Mm. Uh, I don't know if nice nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> Professional level. Uh, basically, my whole childhood was like my parents building stuff and doing everything for them for mm -hmm. the, for ourselves. So my mom, my mom and dad built the house. My mom was a carpenter. She was she built the crib that I was wow. in. My mom is so hardcore. She took raw wool, carded it, if you know what that is, like it's to separate all of the sticks and to make it, and to make it smooth. And then she would take those pieces of yarn and then use a drop spindle to make thread. Yeah. And then she would knit or weave the thread. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah. Because she's like an entire factory in one person. She's a factory. In one that person. is crazy. Wow. I'm yeah. impressed. I mean, I that, thought, that I thought it was cool that my grandma could knit like without being able to see, but that is. That's another level. That is another that's level. That, level. <laughs> that is next next level. Yeah, that's Alaska level. It was pretty cool. So I, I can see what they were getting at. Like they they wanted to kind of you know, really experience doing all that stuff themselves. No, but they really went all in, which is something I They'd find really on. cool because a lot of people say that, you know, they want to go out in these cabins and they mm. want to do all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and then they're there for a week and they're like, oh, I miss Wi-Fi or I miss yep. this. I mean, of course it was back in the day, but mm. there's still a lot of nice amenities that they probably missed out there, but they still, yeah, kept to it, which is very nice. 
to to yeah to get like a point of view on. They, they are pretty hardcore and yeah i mean like in alaska we don't really consider somebody to have moved there until they've been there for several years mm -hmm. i mean usually what happens is there's a guy will move out he'll like set up a cabin his wife will come out maybe one one winter maybe less and she'll be like I'm out, you know. Yeah, uh, so I mean, it's not for everybody because you know there's this idealization of, of it, and there's incredibly beautiful aspects of it, and like your experiences are very. I don't want to say like pure. I think is too much, but you know, rustic. Well, I mean, it's just very direct. If you're yeah. hungry, you got to like go find a fish, and if you're cold, you need to go get some wood to burn, and that's a, a beautiful thing. But it's it's cold and it's hard. It's hard work. I it's mean, hard work, yeah. after two weeks there, I'm like getting so much better shape just from walking around yeah. because you're walking on rocks. Everything is unstable. Everything is slippery. Everything is dangerous. But that's, that's Alaska. Funny. Yeah, that's Alaska. <laughs> so that sounds like a really cool childhood, though. Yeah. <laughs> did you spend like the entire childhood there or did you move away at some point? We moved. So my parents split up uh, when I was around 10 or 11 because my mom wanted us to go to public school, mm -hmm. among other things. Her and my dad had different ideas about oh, okay. what, oh. what is a good uh, upbringing and what are the future of our children. So were you homeschooled before that? Yeah. Oh. For three years and my sister for one year. So my mom got a box in the mail every month from a pedagogical person in the capital. Mm -hmm. And she administered the... the assignments to me for the first three years of my life that's nice when your mom's your mom teacher oh it's not nice no. and no. principal no, no. and everything oh it was awful because <laughs> she can yell at you and hit you and Aww. threaten you and yeah um, they're not they, you know you couldn't get away with that in a public too much school. authority in one person <clears throat> yeah that's yeah. just exactly yeah she was a she's she was a, a well a benevolent dictator no a couple hours um yeah so then you just started going to, to school yeah, in third grade, I went to public school for the first time, and I ran away. Yeah, it must have been hard. I yeah, mean. I wasn't. I was, like, used to being around f three other people. Yeah, my mom, exactly. my dad, and my sister. So when I was in a class with, you know, 15 kids uh, of 10 years old, I was, like, super overwhelmed, and I didn't like it. So I just, yeah, for the first month, I ran away, and... You know, people would call my mom and they'd be like, uh, your son is like, Not he's here. downtown, <laughs> so you know. So yeah. was that easier, going downtown where there would be more people? No, I just needed to get out of oh, school. Oh, okay, awesome. okay. Yeah. No, I mean downtown, come on, this, this is a tiny town. Oh, like, yeah, that's <laughs> right, that's right, that's right. Whatever you're picturing, like, uh, it's much smaller than yeah. that. Yeah, uh, I don't know why, I just thought that you moved to some, like, to California or something, which you did later, but yeah, yeah. that's just me messing up the timeline, yeah. Hmm. That's did, nice. Yeah, did it take you long to get used to being around other kids? It took a while. Oh. Yeah. And I uh, and I was pretty... Sh I think I was just kind of a shy person. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of a challenge. Like, you know, I was even shy w around my, you know, family. I was just kind of maybe just an introvert. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it took a while. And then you started liking school so much. You're still mm. in school now. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's kind of ironic, too, because I... I don't know if I even really liked school that yeah. much. It's, I mean, it's like crazy that I'm still here. Yeah. But I like, uh, I, I'm curious, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes school can be a good way to find out things and, and to bring interesting people together. And I mean, I'm really, yeah, I'm really happy about the education that I've got. I'm really, really lucky. Education I mean, is the power, the most powerful tool you can have. I mean, didn't Nelson Mandela say that or something? It's it's pretty powerful. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of different yeah. ways to learn, though. So I'm not yeah, one of, of these course. people that thinks only institutions are the way to do it. I but, mean, you yeah. yeah. Sorry, 
I was just going to say that, you know, there was, there was like a, a divergence between my parents' worldviews, you know, that especially came out when they split up. And my dad was like, he wanted to kind of drop out of the system. I mean, he was a hardcore hippie. Mm -hmm. till the end like he had long hair and the beard and everything oh, okay. he was a nonconformist, and he was like uh you know i want my kids to be able to be independent i want them to learn crafts you know to to be skillful and and to be able to sort of like not not have to be a part of that system and my mom wanted us to be educated essentially mm -hmm. i mean i think she saw the potential that the opportunities that would be presented yes, to definitely. us yeah. and my dad was like oh you know reading and writing like uh, you know like <laughs> that's so important and my mom's like uh yes reading and writing are very important and yeah. they're gonna learn so i mean what after they split up it was like me and my sister would stay with my mom in the school year and then we'd go visit my dad in the summer mm -hmm. so basically i had this two different worlds that yeah. i lived in my mom you know was like very serious we had to get good grades you know and all this kind of stuff so she, she set a very high bar for us academically and and all of this which was good because we were just kids and we needed that and then with my dad he was like super relaxed you know laissez-faire kind of guy and he was yeah. all about you know making stuff and creativity and art and all of this kind of thing living like a very very meager lifestyle because yeah. he didn't care about worldly stuff really i mean he just he was like i would never go to work for somebody where i can do my own thing and it, i don't care about the money just as long as i have enough to eat yeah so it was kind of cool like i had these you two had different perspectives you're like hannah montana best of both worlds <laughs> but i mean you kind of did combine two worlds you took the you took the yeah. creativity you took mm. the, the craftsman craftsmanship and then you took it with you to to higher education right like you yeah. studied engineering yeah. uh, yes yes in, in the u.s Yeah, I got my bachelor's degree in mechanical yeah. engineering. Okay, so yeah. what did you do with it in the U.S.? In the U.S., so my early career, I was, like, very driven to make money, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, because my upbringing, for me, it was too insecure. Mm -hmm. My dad had a very relaxed attitude with money, and I need a little bit more security. That's my personal, like, comfort zone. So we were, like, we were pretty poor, And to the level of, like, it was a little bit sketchy, I would say. I mean, we were in a community where people would help us out. We wouldn't starve or anything like that. But, I mean, it was, yeah. But it's I, understandable I, why you would want that financial security yeah. now that you've studied so much. And, I don't know, so school in the U.S. is pretty expensive. Yeah, so, it was. Yeah. It was an investment. Mm -hmm. But basically, my goal at that time was, like, I want to make cool shit. And I want to get some money. Because I don't want to struggle. So and did you make cool shit and <laughs> make some money? Yeah. I yeah. Did. I did, actually. That's yeah. That. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think I achieved the American dream Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in my late 20s. So I had a, uh, I had a job at Boeing. I was helped develop a, air, a freighter aircraft, like a jet, the Boeing 777. And then I got a cool job in California where I made prototype airplanes, which was like cool, super cool from a nerdy engineering perspective. Uh, just, I actually helped design the biggest airplane in the world. A380? Oh, wow. uh, no, it's bigger than that. Oh, w what's the name of that? It's called the Strato Launch. Oh, it's a okay, prototype. Okay, okay, the prototype. That's the biggest production aircraft. Yeah. yeah. So how big are we talking? It has a 117 meter wingspan. Ooh, 117? Yes. Okay, I thought you said 170. I was like, that's as tall as me. I was very <laughs> No, no, I'm not even that tall. Oh my God, <laughs> Meters? No, 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 no. How did oh you God, fit in this okay. building? My bad, my bad. I'm just, 
That's all right. The metric system is so confusing. That would be a sweet, you know, model airplane, mm. I guess. Oh yeah. Actually, I have one question for you. You yes. grew up in the U.S. You mm. guys use these crazy units. Mm, yeah, interesting. So how was that? Like coming to Denmark, or did were you familiar with it before? Yeah, oh, in okay. engineering school, you kind of learn both. Okay. Oh yeah, of course. Which is nice, and sometimes we would actually calculate in in metric because it makes sense. Yeah. yeah and then we at the end we would convert it back to like uh, metric feet always or something. makes sense. Yeah. But that's very interesting because a lot of my friends they go to the U.S. to study and they're <coughs> like, um, "Why are we learning about yards and foot yeah. and uh, feet?" Sorry, yeah. and um, yeah, English uh, mm. feet and all these different um, measurements. When mm. you know we have the metric system, is there a reason for that? Do you know why you are why the U.S. is so adamant to use mm. that? Well, I mean, we were originally British. So that's where it came from. But even the British now use metric. Yeah, I mean, they adapted. Yeah, 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 to the times. <laughs> I think it's just the British because, moved like, on. When will you? I know that's sad when the when the British are more progressive than you. Yeah, I think it's just because we're kind of stubborn. And yeah. also, uh, you know, for example, like at Boeing, uh, if if everything is in in inches, it would a- it would actually be quite a lot of cost associated with switching uh, over. Mm-hmm. There was a president some years ago who was like, "We need to switch," and then everyone's like. I don't really know what a, I don't even really know what a yeah. liter looks like yeah. or what's a kilo. Yeah, but what so. is a pint? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. but it, that's interesting. I've always wanted to know, so I was like, a person that's done both could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think it's yeah. mostly just history and change is hard. So you said you were you worked on the Boeing 777 when it was being made. I or worked on a developing a new version of the 777. Developing a new version yeah, of it. Okay. The freighter aircraft. Because I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still crazy, but yeah. I mean, the Boeing 777 is one of the, yeah. I mean, I, that's probably the only airplane I've traveled the most in, actually. It's a nice airplane. It's a nice airplane. Mm. Okay, so how come you are now in our living room in Denmark mm. and not living the American dream? Well, the thing is, the American dream is 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 a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but I sacrificed, uh, you know, my friendships and my... my uh, you know, and being around my family and a lot of things to get this career. And I had a lot of money and I could buy a lot of stuff. So I had nice cars and I, I more than one motorcycles and stuff. So, I mean, I had all this stuff, but I, but I didn't really have a happy life. You know, I, I thought that I would get happy once I got this career and I got this mm-hmm. money and all this stuff. And so you didn't? no, I didn't. So didn't. money does <clears> not equal <throat> happiness. Are not, we getting uh, up to a certain point? Uh, beyond a certain point, absolutely, and that actually has been p- proven empirically as well. Once you make, I think it's over fifty thousand dollars. I can't remember exactly. Oh, okay, because I've I've seen it. Then the happiness study. doesn't yeah, yeah. It, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. So basically, like I needed, what I found is I need to like, I'm not happy or I don't feel secure when I'm, you know, in in object object poverty. But once I get up to a certain level, like now, I just live a lot. Be I actually live very much below my means and I just like do other things with my money that mm-hmm. because I, I don't really care that much about it. I mean, it's nice to have, but then you have so much freedom. Like you can take a job. Like I took a job in a startup in Denmark, which was like, they barely paid, they didn't even pay us enough where I could like legally stay in the country. They had to pay me slightly more, which is <laughs> <laughs> so low. Yeah. And also the university, like, let's be honest, it's, you know, there's way more money in industry or like in defense or something. Uh, but I get summers off, and I get to hang out with cool people like you on a, on a weekday. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but you're asking, how do I come to Denmark? Yeah. yeah. And the short answer is, I met a girl. Yeah. Was, when I, was she Danish? She was, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I was in California, and I just was renting a room from somebody, and she was a very cute girl. 
So, <laughs> so uh, like, yeah, I was like, hey, we should, to we should celebrate that I got a new apartment. Oh. Yeah, so we went and had a drink together, and she was studying to be a singer-songwriter uh, in the U.S. Oh, so wow. she's a musician. And yeah, and so then we like ended up being together, and she lived, she's from uh, Charlottenland oh, okay. in, in mm -hmm. Copenhagen. So I came to Denmark a bunch of times, and I was <clears throat> I was 29 at the time, and I was thinking I was going to go see the world in my engineering career, and I didn't really get to do that. So I was kind of like, you know, a little bit over the so-called American dream, and I was ready to like do something different. And I guess meeting her was just kind of like right right place at right time. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh Denmark, you know, I came over to Copenhagen in the summer the, for the first time, and I was like, what a cool place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, <clears throat> I think they need to sell Denmark in the summer. Yeah. Like to, well, to you foreigners. have to that. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah. somebody comes to Denmark for the first time at a day like this, no, oh, no yeah, way. They gone. Interesting, because yeah. when I came to Denmark for the first time, I was in October. <laughs> October, <clears throat> no, actually October, September 30th, October 1st, and it was very cold. Mm. Autumn, of course, mm. and you know what? That's what sold Denmark to me, because I was coming. Like I wanted the, I wanted to see the cold. I wanted to see the snow. True. Mm. Sure. So, okay, that's. So I feel like Denmark's pretty nice all year round, but except for when it's raining. Yeah, I hate the rain. Often. Yeah. Yeah, but you also switched to, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say but like a completely different industry, but mm -hmm. you're working with drones now, right? Yeah, I mean, I look at it as just aerospace, but on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I would say the, the biggest switch was going to the university. So yeah. I, uh, even in Denmark, <clears throat> excuse me, I was, uh, you know, I was working at companies, uh, so I was just in industry. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have that much interest in academia. In the U.S., in it, you basically get a bachelor's degree and then you go work. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't really expecting to, to like be involved in academia, but I got a job with SDU just teaching one course in composite materials <clears throat> and I was totally terrified to be in front of these students. And it, I mean, literally had like, I don't want to say panic attacks, but like extreme amounts of anxiety mm -hmm. every time I would go and teach. I mean, I was yeah. terrified because I was just, I mean, when you're an engineer, you know, you can sit and you can think and you can be by yourself, you know, and you can sort of like have your own, you know, space. And, and yeah, I mean, that's just how I was used to working. I wasn't used to, yeah. to explaining things. So it was, it was actually quite terrifying. Uh, but I got a lot of enjoyment out of, I just like to do things I find, inter find interesting and tell other people about it. And that's kind of what teaching is, I think. Yeah. It's just yeah. sort of like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we built something like this? And then yeah. you just like have a bunch of people that listen to you, hopefully. So were you also building stuff mm -hmm. like in, in the class? Uh, well, that that was the intention. <laughs> but they they didn't give me a lab until, I don't know, we didn't get a lab until like a few years ago. Okay. Oh, <laughs> this okay. was like seven years ago. So They're like, oh, we're going to move to a new building. We don't want to build anything. Oh, uh, right, like, right, uh, right, right, right. Because it's yeah. a new building. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. I've always tried to have a good connection with this sort of like physical stuff too. I mean, I'm somebody that needs, I'm glad I don't I just have to do manual labor all day, but I also uh, am glad that I, I mean, I experienced with the PhD where I was just sitting writing all day and it's not for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really like to have a mix of these two things and, and like hands-on lab work, whatever you want to call it. And it also like craft, craftsmanship, art, you know, uh, physically making things that's what draws me to engineering like at the end of the day i can uh i can point it what did i do today yeah well that aircraft is a little bit more built now because i went to work that's kind of cool yeah it gives you a nice sense of accomplishment yeah exactly yeah. whereas yeah. Like, to me done. a pdf yeah. is like you know uh, yeah that's very true i mean of course <clears> it's <throat> nice to you know write some stuff as well once in a while i think yeah. but but 
Yeah, I can definitely understand what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about your PhD project? Or yeah, yeah, sure. I would say that my PhD project was kind of like a culmination of the things that I'm interested in, which was really cool. So as I got farther in my career, I started to think more about what are the sort of like ethical social implications of technology. At first, I was just interested in making what I thought was like cool stuff. Uh, and I thought technology is good because technology moves us forward in air quotes. So if I make a new jet or a new you know, drone or whatever, it will be good because it will be something that didn't exist before. But I kind of also felt like, okay, maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe it isn't so straightforward because you can see there's a lot of problems in society kind of like caused or facilitated by, by technology. I mean, privacy violations mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know all this Brexit stuff with the social media and AI and I mean, there's, uh, and even climate change. I mean, you could argue that engineers are, are basically responsible for it because we made the in- engines that made all the CO2. I mean, this is, this is of course, uh, maybe kind of a strong position, yes. but it's also another way to look at it. It is, it is because, so, yeah. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to confront you with one of your quotes from, oh <laughs> from before. You said that nothing is ethically neutral. Mm. Is, this, is this what you mean? Or mm. is it also when, you, when you're actually even trying to do ethical engineering, is it still a valid point? That it's not an absolute term ever? <laughs> yes, I would say that's one, been one of the main things that I found in my research, uh, which in the, in the philosophy of science and e- uh, technology ethics uh, worlds is like common knowledge. Uh, but yeah, th- the sort of like current paradigm in those fields is that, you know, even this microphone, there's like, there's values embedded in this from the materials that it came from, you know, what kind of things does it facilitate? What kind of things does it sort of prevent? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah, uh, the, this viewpoint means that the job of a technologist is not just how do I make this microphone work? It's also much more complicated because there will be a lot of sort of like farther reaching implications. So to me, this means that our scope, uh, the scope of what engineers should do should be expanded quite significantly because I think what we've been doing is, is, is specialized, is hi- be becoming so highly specialized that we really don't think about or we even intentionally get rid of all the context mm-hmm. and we think about, you know, um, it's optimization, whatever, whatever that is. But yeah, I'll give you an example because to me this was this took a while. I'd say it took a year or two for me to really like exe- uh, uh, buy into the idea that technology is not neutral. So one example uh, is uh, in a, our, an article by Langdon Winner uh, in 1980, I think it was, and it's called the um, it's called "Do Artifacts Have Politics?" And by artifact, they mean like uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know products or whatever and the example that's given in there is of power plants and the author argues that a nuclear power plant uh, is 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 more like leads towards more centralizations of power like uh, political power because of the way that the technology works and he compares that with solar power so when you have a nuclear power plant, it's a very high-tech thing, and you need to have sort of like a lot of, like cost a lot of money to build one. You can't just build a small one. So there's a lot of resources that go into it. Then there's a lot of safety and security. So there's a lot of uh, um, sort of like security that needs to go around that. And basically you will have very one, one physically centralized 
Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One very centralized um, uh, sort of like power station. If you contrast that with solar, you might have 20 villages or 50 homes or 100 homes that have their own sort of like miniature power system. And he was arguing that that is more inherent, that technology is more inherently democratic because all of these individual people, entities, whatever, have control over their own power. And to me, this was one of the examples that sort of made it click. So mm -hmm. like, if I'm an engineer on solar versus nuclear, there's some pretty big implications that go along with that. And so that's kind of how I uh, approach engineering now, is, is with this sort of holistic um, viewpoint. And again, like, there's a lot of uh, pretty beneficial aspects of nuclear power, so it's not... Not, it's not really black and white either. No. I mean, I mean you, we can probably think of examples of pretty evil technology, but like um, real technology is, is very nuanced. There's a lot of benefits and a lot of risks yeah. as well. So, yeah, that's what technology is. Exactly. But that's very interesting that you know you decided to, um, yeah, how do you say like you just investigate technology from this point of view because mm. a lot of technologists they kind of like, you know, make the product and then mm. they kind of move on. And then I feel like as a society, this time is now a time where we're reflecting on all of these inventions that were made before yeah. and what implications that they have on us today. I mean, they're very intense. As you said, climate change is one mm. of the biggest ones. Um, and the thing that you were talking about politics, I mean, in Denmark, uh, back in the day, we decided against the power plant. Mm. And it yeah. was, uh, it was from the people. And yeah, yeah I, I don't think we really have a power plant either. But I heard something about Nroskile, there is something, but I don't really know. I, I can't fact check that right now. But yeah, that's very interesting. And um, you said growing up, you had your mom's side, which was a bit academical, and then your father's side, which was very artistic. Mm. Do you do any art in your free time? Or is that not a part of you anymore? Yeah, I still do that. Uh, I think that there's I think there's a lot of different kinds of engineers, but I think a really good engineer needs to be very creative. Uh, to me, problem solving and sort of like ideation and all this stuff is a creative act. So of course there are some that are, you know, look at quite a narrow um, field and they sort of uh, calculate. <laughs> so, uh, but, but I think there's also a lot of creativity that goes along with the, with the act of being an engineer. But yeah, so I, I've been, I like to do, Creative stuff. Usually it ends up being happening in the summer because that's when I don't have so much work at the university. So different, yeah, different summers I'll sort of like dive into different things like uh, abstract painting one year or f short films. And late, the latest thing I'm working on is like non-objects. So they're sort of like products that's, that look like they should work, but they don't. Um, and they're kind of like infuriatingly um, unuser friendly, which can I think is so fun. Can you give us an example of, of, of a non-object? Yeah, uh, the one that really inspired me was this. Uh, it's it's made by a French artist, and it's a coffee pot with the handle and the spout on the same side. And <laughs> exactly, Yo, that would that would <laughs> make me very anxious. <laughs> I know, and I mean, like, I'm a little bit OCD too. So I, just the idea of it, like, I feel a little bit triggered by it. But well, I also what think was it's the fun. Title for the coffee pot for masochists. Exactly, yeah, yeah. the coffee pot crazy. for masochists. <laughs> I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, it was really fun because usually what we do is we're like so versed in engineering and as designers to like make things easy for people. And it was really fun to just like, you know, I made an object where the switch was like impossibly in a small, small uh, opening that you can't quite get your hand in. And I mean, it, to me, it was just, uh, I was 
having so much fun, fun. because yeah. it was so subversive and yeah. so yeah just fun to like play with these rules and to point them out I think is important sometimes to know what sometimes you learn a lot about doing the opposite of what you're normally doing mm-hmm. I think and that's what that's what's fun and useful about art because in engineering like we still almost always have like some kind of constraints you know we have budget constraints or time schedules or whatever or or like functional requirements and the the amazing thing about art is then you get free hands and of course i think there's nothing more difficult than than starting with a blank page i think being an artist is incredibly challenging in in many ways more challenging than being an engineer because the scope is basically unlimited mm-hmm. uh, but you can sort of like you can do art sort of like research as well because you can then investigate a, a certain sort of like idea. Yeah. And that's kind of what I did with this. I made three different objects. And basically I was like, I would say doing, kind of doing experiments, you know, uh, trying to, uh, yeah, uh, go deep into this idea of like non-user friendliness. And Do you want to give us some examples of what you've made? Yeah, uh, so I think, what is the title? One of them that people seem to like, I called it the, um, the short range ether detection meter. Uh, which it, 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 the ether is something that doesn't really exist. So I thought that was kind of funny. Like uh, <laughs> a lot of these are sort of inside jokes to yeah. like nerds. I don't know how many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they'll track or not. But um, I mean, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Is that the one with the switch? Yeah. Buried? yeah. Oh, yeah okay. The unreachable switch. The unreachable switch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unless you have very small hands. <laughs> oh. Or, I a mean. Sti- or a stick. <laughs> or a stick. Yeah, but that makes that's that's very interesting to see like how you have this contrast. I mean, for me, of course, um, of course, an engineer should be creative, mm. but I think it's still very interesting to see somebody that is so, um, you know, in the industry as well and as creative as you are. Are you ever going to have like an exhibition of your artwork? Mm. Do you want to do that, or have you done that? I've had one exhibition before, and actually, these objects will be in uh, displayed in Aarhus uh, on Friday. Oh wow! In the Eros yeah. Museum? No, no, oh, no, oh, no. Oh, sorry. In Aarhus. In oh. At yeah. a small, at a small, oh, oh, okay, small okay. gallery. I'm not at Aarhus okay. yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. That would be amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, just a small gallery, but it's pretty cool. It's yeah. the first time I've had objects displayed in a gallery, and uh, a couple of months ago, I had an exhibition which was called Men in Skirts which was here in Uonsa, and it was basically men wearing skirts. Yeah, 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 very, very very creative. Uh, But that was sort of like an exploration of, and a little bit of a critique about gender and how I think it's kind of stupid that we have these rules that men and women should wear certain things. And also kind of a critique of, I would say, Denmark and in European culture because there's sort of like... uh, Gender norms? There is very strict gender norms yeah. and and i think like scandinavia is supposed to be so woke and you know everybody is supposed to be you know like uh equal and yeah, stuff but yeah. there's still like boys on one side girls on another side yeah. so i mean this of course this exhibition was quite contextual so i mean the audience became part of the show so there was a bunch of skirts displayed and then like people got to try them on yeah and it was pretty That's fun because it's nice. very interactive men don't normally get to play dress up especially like Grown up men. Yeah, yeah. Which technically I am a member of that community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like almost super disappointed that we have to sort of wind down. Oh, <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> there's so much more that we can cover with you. I think we, yeah. we're going to have to invite you back for another episode. Sure. But I have one more question. Yes. The ending question for all our guests. Yeah. What is your life hack? Something that, that gets mm. you through life easily. Hmm. 
Well, I've never, I don't think life is easy. <laughs> but I see where you're headed. <laughs> but can you make our lives easier? Yeah. Uh, Inspire us. Yeah. Uh, the thing that's probably worked the best for me is just, um, you know, following my interest. I mean, it's kind of a cliche piece of advice. Uh, but like we were talking earlier about my sort of like nonlinear career path. And basically all I've done is like, I think I've been kind of lucky for one, but I've just sort of like followed the things that I'm interested in. And a, one nice thing about getting older is like, after you have these different tools in your toolbox, at a certain point, some of them start to come together and coalesce. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, I can use this thing with that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, um, yeah, this is a beautiful thing about just being curious about different stuff. And I think a life hack would be yeah just to be curious and to like be interested in a lot of different things i'm i'm very nervous by the specialization that's happening you know people that only know how to go to work and do the one thing and that really worries me i you know i like uh, i did a little bit of gardening and I, I i know how to sew and i like to do all kinds of different stuff and I, those to me those are the most interesting kind of people yeah, you and have i have more of a holistic view in yeah. life yeah I, th I think life is like there's just that's the hard part is deciding what to do because yeah. <laughs> there's so much cool stuff to do. That is very interesting. Thank you for that life hack. Um, yeah. I guess that's it then. Yeah. yeah. That is it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming and thank yeah. you for like, well, all of this. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for this amazing conversation. Yeah. Sure. Thanks for listening and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook um, and please tune in next time where we get back with another guest.